we all deal with pain in our own way. And pain comes in all shapes and sizes. It can crash over you like an ocean wave or it can bite at you like a little mosquito. Sometimes pain can cause you to seek help. But unfortunately, all too often, pain gets pushed aside or brushed off like it's no big deal. Our guest today is professional baseball player Drew Robinson, whose pain became too much to bear and all came to a head on April 16, 2020. Thankfully, Drew survived, and an otherwise tragic end has turned into a story of hope, redemption, and a second chance at life. Every day, 130 Americans die by suicide. I can't help but think about what their final thoughts must have been, how much pain and sadness they were feeling to believe death was their only escape. Perhaps the saddest part about it is knowing how lonely they must have found themselves in those final moments, as well as knowing how much pain their families must have gone through. Today's episode is intense, emotional, and at times hard to hear. Please, if you're having thoughts of harming yourself, talk to someone. If you can't confide in a close friend or family member, there are many local and national hotlines ready and able to listen. We hope this episode will give you a new perspective and impact you as much as it impacted us. On April 16, 2020, Drew sat on his living room couch. He poured himself a glass of whiskey and then another. He stopped. He didn't have an alcohol problem and didn't want anyone to surmise otherwise. His thoughts crashed into one another about what it would look like and whom it would affect and who would find him. He was alone, alone until the end. At about 8 p.m. in one uninterrupted motion, he leaned to the side, reached out to the coffee table, lifted the gun, pressed it against his right temple, and pulled the trigger. That was supposed to be the end of Drew Robinson's story. Over the next 20 hours, he would come to realize it was the beginning of another. That was an excerpt from recent, the recent ESPN article by Jeff Passan titled Drew Robinson's Remarkable Second Act. And with that, our guest today is professional baseball player Drew Robinson, who just lived through one of the most incredible events imaginable. Drew, welcome to the show. Man, uh, thank you so much. What a, what a heavy intro, but um, man, it's, it's exciting. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Man, Drew, so thank you again, and, and I know that that's a heavy intro, um, but what we're really excited about discussing is what happened after that, and that 20 hours, and the realization that you came with, and, and the impact uh, that you are already making, because again, let's, let's remember, I mean, let's not overlook that date, that was, that was less than a year ago that this event happened, and we're going to dig into that, 
Drew, but man, we're, we're excited to, to go back to the beginning, uh, talk about, okay, what led up to this, but most, most importantly is what, what happened after that moment and the impact that you're making and, and the things that you'd like to say to those individuals, maybe that struggled with, um, some of the th- same things that you did. So what we want to do is we want to go back to your childhood and just get a better understanding of how you were raised and uh, what childhood was like for you and what the, dy- the dynamics were in your family. Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned in the film, uh, our family was pretty dysfunctional. We, we had a lot of challenges. Um, parents didn't get along very well. They weren't right for each other, but they were trying to make it work for my brother, my sister, and I. Um, and that led to a lot of, I don't know, un- uncomfortable situations throughout childhood. But at the same time, I think because of those situations, my dad, my mom, like our whole family as a whole, we just, we did a really good job of keeping things as light as possible. Um, we didn't communicate as much, which looking back, that's, that was a little detrimental to me now realizing. But at the same time, it taught us to, like I said, take things lightly and make good of as many situations as we could. And that's something that I wish I might have, I don't know, enhanced more often in my life and like realized that was a pretty good skill set that I had and my brother and sister that we all learn. Um, but a lot of those challenges really weighed on myself and my brother, and my sister. Um, and with those uh, the other side of making light of things, we also, we also found distractions. And for my brother and I, we found baseball and sports and luckily that's turned into a, a career for us. Yeah. For people who haven't read the article, when did you start playing baseball? Tell us a little bit more about early life growing up. Yeah. So I was, I started early cause like I said, I had an older brother who was playing and I just, I always wanted to be around him. I always was trying to keep up with him. Um, so I started, I want to say I started like around five or six and like normal T-ball stuff. And then just did the little league lifestyle, the travel ball tra- lifestyle. Um, and just traveling all over, all over the West Coast, pretty much um, with my team. And then also, I was the bat boy for my brother's team because I just, I don't know, I guess I couldn't <laughs> get enough baseball. I just always wanted to be around even more. Um, just always annoying my brother, trying to fit in with him and his friends, um, and my family and I. We were just always on the move um, from one tournament to the other. Were you in Vegas? You lived in Vegas, right? Yeah, Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Um, what what my is family? From, my family's from LA, and they moved out to Vegas right before I was born. Okay, so what is it about baseball in Vegas? I mean, I mean <laughs> there is so much talent that comes out of that city. Yeah, we had a really good run for about, I don't know, eight or nine years where the talent was super high. So, I don't know, I kind of joke about it. Like, there's really nothing else to do besides either gamble or play sports <laughs> or do something act- like something active. So, for me, it was just baseball. And I think that's what a lot of other kids in the city followed suit with. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so what what was it for you personally, specifically? About, other than, you know, you were hanging out with your older brother and you want to do what he did, what did you enjoy about baseball? Well, obviously the competition. Um, I was really competitive as, as a kid, and it really was the other deciding factor was my brother. Um, I just I idolized him. He was always the best at everything he did. He was he, – he was a – I know he had his growth spurt, growth spurt early, so he was always bigger and stronger than everyone else. So I just, he was always a stud on every team. So I always wanted to just like be like him and, and do anything I could to keep up with him. And I just really wanted to be like him. So, mm-hmm. um, since he was the main baseball guy, 
Um, that's where I went. And I just, like I said, I was just really following his example for most of my life. So you mentioned that your parents, you know, weren't right for each other, tried to make it work. They ended up ultimately splitting up. Um, and you went to live with your dad, with your brother. How was that dynamic between your mom and your sister being together and then the men being together? And, and, and how did that play into the pressure um, to, to be the baseball, you know, the top guy, to be successful, to be all those things? Yeah, well, I think it's important to note that at first I did stay with my mom. Um, they split when I was in elementary school. And at first I, I was, I was mainly with my mom up until, um, going into high school is when I made the switch to more, more time with my dad. And, and that dynamic, it was, it was, uh, it was tough because I was hearing things a lot, a lot of one-sided bias, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. arguments from, from each parent. So mm-hmm. I was trying to choose which one I wanted to believe most of my, t- most of my life. So that dynamic was tough, but, um, yeah, once I got to high school and moved with my dad and started kind of growing into myself, I guess, as, as my own athlete, um, instead of following my brother's footsteps, I, I, I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, I don't know exactly where that stemmed from, if it was from something to do with the divorce or whatnot, but, um, it was just always there. It was always like, like passing described in the article, this companion that was always telling me to do more, be better, just nothing's good enough type thing. And ultimately, like I said, that, that, turned out to be kind of detrimental, but, um, I'm not exactly sure yeah. <laughs> what the pressure was from. So in, in the article, um, there's a, there's an excerpt here. Uh, it says, uh, there was something magnetic about drew, even if it wasn't an obvious match, he could be loud, bombastic, always trying to look and, and act cool. Um, the world could, uh, so the world could not see drew how he saw himself not as the jokester, but as the joke. So when was it in high school where you really started to kind of doubt yourself and to feel like, okay, hey, I've got this facade, right? I've got it all together. I'm the jokester. I'm funny. I'm super talented on the baseball field. But when did you start to have those thoughts in your mind that, hey, look, they're not seeing me for who I really am because I really believe that I'm the joke, not the jokester? I mean, unfortunately, that started before high school. Um, I always felt like I was the kind of in-between kid where I, I could fit in and get along with uh, the cool kids, as you would say, and 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 the other group, the other side of things. I always felt like I was kind of a little bit of everything. And I think just looking back, I just never had my own identity because I didn't know what I was really trying to blend in with and fit in with. So I was just kind of all over the place. And that created a lot of... I don't know, different personalities, I guess, where I could try to be the cool kid for a day and then try to be the class clown the next day. And then I would go home and realize I would, I would make myself believe that I was really just doing a lot of things um, that I thought would were supposed to be done in whatever setting I was trying to fit in instead of just genuinely being myself. And again, looking back, I realized that that was a really another cool school, uh, another cool skill set that I had was being able to kind of fit in with everyone and, and see, I don't know, be able to adjust to whatever crowd I was in and, and blend in in a way that, um, I don't know, that was comfortable for me. So again, unfortunately, most of the time I was always spinning it into a negative way where instead of being proud of being able to get along with people, Mm -hmm. I thought that I was just being 
a dis, like a, I wasn't being genuine. I was a fake person, fake personality. And, um, like I said, I, I was really good at turning things into negative. Yeah. Dude, I could totally relate to that, Drew, because <clears throat> that's I, even in, even in early testimonies, like talking to people, uh, speaking to youth groups and stuff like that. Like I was a chameleon. I could be who I needed to be in front of who I was with at the moment. And I get that, and I and I get how that could you could look at that as a negative way because it's like, man, I, I I look at these people and they're so sure of who they are, and they're so sure of their identity, whether they are or not, right? When you're when you're 15, 16 years old, you just think, oh my gosh, they've got to figure it out. They know exactly what it is. But you know, in hindsight, so far, you're like, man, sure. yeah, yeah it, it, it's all a facade, right? But but I get that because I was that person as well as I was, I was friends with those guys. I was friends with that guy. I was, I was friends with that group of people. I was involved in this group. I was, but it's like, I didn't, I wasn't sure who I was. Mm. Right. And, and I get how you can get lost at that age and then attach your identity with something that you're really good at for you. Baseball for me, right. it was football. Um, so, so talk us through, talk us through that next step when, well, hold on. Before we go there, I, I, the one thing I wanted to know is, you know, listen, I, I have a, a young man, my son, who's who's gone through the club baseball experience. And there's a lot of failure through that process. Good times, and but there's a lot of failure. And in baseball, you know, if you get three hits out of 10, you're batting 300. Brother, you are an all-star. How did you, as a young kid, how did you deal with the failure that was right in front of you? <laughs> Man, I didn't. Um, <laughs> you can ask anyone that was on my team when I was younger, any parent that was around the team. I was I was all over the place with my emotions. I, I was the kid that was always slamming my bat after every out. I was crying multiple times throughout the game. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I wanted, I was always, and this is, in a, as a kid, I never like analyzed it like this, but looking back, I realized I just, for some reason I thought I had to be perfect all the time. And anytime I, like, like you said, in baseball, you get out way more than you get a hit. So that led to a lot of, a lot of times of basically not meeting that expectation of being perfect. Mm -hmm. So, um, I didn't handle it well. And I, I really didn't handle it well up until last year as a, as a full blown adult. So, um, it's something I'm still learning and it's something that, takes a lot of work and a lot of patience and a lot of faith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because you, at least the, the, what the article references is you were a, a, you were on the varsity as a freshman. And so clearly you were an unbelievable baseball player for that much talent <laughs> to be a freshman on varsity. That doesn't happen very often. So I guess the thought that I have in my head is what if you didn't have baseball? Do you think it would have been easier to maybe you know, identify with, with or, or really know who the real Drew was? Do you think baseball had something to do with that? I, I don't think so. Um, I just, I wasn't able to, like I said, I wasn't really able to analyze things in real time from like an objective mindset. Um, but if anything, baseball has has sped up the process of learning who I was. And, and I was just, I don't know, I... I I was so far, again, I was so lost all the time that I was trying to do, trying to be different people, different, I was trying to do different things. I was trying to do whatever, but I, baseball was always there for me and it was always challenging me and always pushing me to my limits, uh, more from a mental aspect than anything else. And like I said, I just, unfortunately I was a, a slow learner pretty much. Mm -hmm. And 
baseball has taught me more than anything else in life just because of all the experience you get, all the life experience you get from interacting with teammates and going different cities and all this, all these things and whatnot. But I think if I didn't have baseball, either this would have happened a lot sooner or I just never would have Mm -hmm. even gotten the starting point to the, the, got to the starting line of really learning who I was. Mm-hmm. Drew, talk us through the relationships that you had in high school. Um, you know, whether it's friendships, um, uh, Diana, uh, talk us through those and those roles that, I mean, did you have guys that you could talk to or that, that you could relate to, or were you keeping it all to yourself? I mean, you know, uh, Diana, I mean, talk us through that relationship as well. Yeah. How much time you got? Oh, we got time, brother. <laughs> we got time. <laughs> no. So, I was fortunate enough to have really good friends at high school. Um, always having some best friends that I spent almost all my time with. Um, but I always felt like I was, I always felt like I was the, I don't know, the last in line of the group. I like, whether it be, I remember my first two years of high school, I had these really two close friends that I just thought were so smart um, from academics standpoint. And I thought that I was lacking in that point. So I always thought I was like kind of looking up to them from that aspect. And then I get to, when I hit my growth spurt and go start getting good at baseball, one of my best friends to this day, still he comes in as a freshman, just a complete stud. And I remember being, before I really kind of got some attention, I was like kind of looking up to him in a way. Um, because he was so far ahead of his, his age and really kind of outperformed me at times, but I was kind of like looking up to him and I just always thought that I was lacking in whatever mm. environment I was in. And I always saw like where I could grow. And like I said, I took that in a negative way where I think now I'm able to kind of see that that's a, a healthy challenge to, and like a healthy mindset where I, I see some possibilities to improve on things instead of getting complacent. So my relationships in high school were a lot of I'm the young one or I'm the less experienced one and I need to catch up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah as, a, as opposed to the mindset, right. Thinking about, Hey, I always want to be the dumbest person in the room so I can right. elevate my game, mm-hmm. you know, and thinking of that as a positive, right. As opposed to, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the stupidest person in the room and I don't deserve to be here. And that's, that's the opposite. Um, exactly. So the the article, you know, especially early on. Uh, so Diana, may, talk about that relationship and and when you guys met and and you know how that's that played into your journey. Yeah. So we we officially met like the last three days of high school. We were in the same grade, mm-hmm. but we just never crossed paths. And I was actually it was like the last couple of days of high school, so we had just gotten yearbooks and we we're passing them around. And she just happened to be at one of the tables that I was having her friend sign my yearbook for, and I didn't want to be rude, so I asked if she wanted to sign. And that's like back in the day, that was like Instagram sliding. Oh, for sure, for sure. I put your number down too. <laughs> and so she wrote a quick little thing and mentioned like, "Hey, you're a cutie, whatever." Um, so that was her shooting her shot basically, and then we kind of sparked uh, like kind of some like quick flirt flirting type um, conversations for the next like year or two afterwards and really just kind of eased into a relationship. And it took some time because I was always after high school, I signed right away. So I was gone for like eight months a year. Mm. So we would keep in touch and then I would leave. And then like, sometimes we would um, talk during the season and she even came out to see me one of my early seasons in in the minor leagues. Um, And we didn't officially start dating until 2013. But like I said, we were in contact 
a lot, basically from the last couple of days of high school up until today, obviously. And how big was your high school yeah. class? If you didn't know who <laughs> yeah. she was, that was my next question. Yeah, yeah. we had. I want to say we had over five hundred in, in my okay. senior class. All right, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. She it is it, it it blows our minds too because, like I said, my one of my best friends was best friends with her best friend, and like at times we would hang out with that person's best friend, like somehow we just didn't meet each other. And, um, but she, she, she always gives me some flack about this because she knew who I was and she mentions like, dang, um, whatever. Like she see me in the hallway sometimes and she always kind of goofs around. Like I knew, like I knew from that, I knew from the, after second period or sophomore year or junior year, whatever it was, I, I needed to meet you. I just knew that you were my person. So uh, she kind of gave me some flack because it took me so long to realize it. But. <laughs> it always does. Us, us guys. We're busy. We're yeah. busy. We got a lot on yeah. our minds. <laughs> you, have to, you have to slap us in the forehead to, yeah. to get us. So so you referenced earlier, you referenced the minor league. So you ended up getting drafted in the fourth round by the Texas Rangers in the 2010 draft. And for those of you that don't follow baseball, that is an unbelievable. Big time. That's yeah. huge as a yeah. high schooler to be drafted that high. Um, and so, well, and to a Texas team. So, well, and to yeah. the Rangers, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. We're here in Dallas, too. So, <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I have so many questions. I know we want to keep moving Sorry, on, but ahead. I have so many questions about that draft process and the thoughts. You know, was this a family decision to enter the draft, or did, was there was college in your thought process as well? I mean, I went through the process of doing some recruiting trips, and it was definitely on our radar. But my brother had kind of set the, the bar high for me and he he was one of the top pitchers in the country um if it wasn't for an arm surgery he probably would have been easily a first rounder if not maybe one of the top i don't know half of the first round picks but um so since he was kind of in pro ball i just again i wanted to follow his footsteps so and it's actually kind of funny because i signed with nebraska with letter of intent hmm. but i remember one day my senior year my the, the head coach for Nebraska calls me and like, Hey, what's up? You didn't apply for your, like you missed the application process to apply for classes. And I was like, Oh, uh, my bad. Like <laughs> I didn't even, it really was. I, I, yeah, about I, that. I was, was going to be getting drafted in the first like five ish rounds. And I, I was comfortable with that. So like, unfortunately just whatever, I, I just got distracted or just kind of got this. I don't know. I, well, I yeah, I mean, really, you think about it. I didn't really, you know, I didn't really have college wasn't really on my on my radar as as much as it maybe should have been. But yeah. um, I just I was ready to go to Probot that what I thought. So um, I was preparing for it from basically the, the day my junior year ended, which is when I like had, I kind of had my breakout year. I got put on the map with my performance, and like I said, I had my growth spur. All those things happen all in the same year. So pretty much the day that junior year ended, I was all in on working to get drafted. Yeah, I think uh, – I mean, baseball scholarships are very different than, yeah. than football scholarships. There's only a few guys on a college team that are on full scholarship, right? Because right. there's, what, like yeah, 14 like, scholarships to split between the whole team. Is that right? Yeah. when I, was, I don't know if it's changed, but when I was going through the process, it was like 11 for an entire roster, yeah. which mm-hmm. is usually around 25 to 30 or something like that. So. Yeah. yeah, so either, hey, pay for your books and your room and board <laughs> – or you could get drafted, <laughs> yeah. make a little yeah. money, and go play ball full time. So was that? I, I got to go back on that. Was that decision based on you, or was that a family? Were your mom and dad involved in this decision as well? Yeah, it really was kind of on me. Um, we didn't, we didn't, like I said, we didn't communicate very much as a family. Mm-hmm. And I think just because my brother was playing pro ball, 
my dad and I just kind of assumed like I had an opportunity and I just, like I said, I, I just went all in on working out and getting ready for the, for the possibility of being drafted. Right. So it just kind of worked its way. It just worked itself out. And luckily it did end up working out that the way we were hoping for. Did, did the excitement of, of getting drafted or the, the, pre, the excitement of the pre-draft, did, did any of that change your self-image at all? Did that help at all? In that in that time, it didn't. Um, it definitely changed my image. Um, I'm not even gonna lie. I, I liked the attention. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I it made me feel good about myself, and it was kind of like a drug where I just wanted more of it. Mm-hmm. And I took that and put it into my work. Like I, I would wait. I don't know. I, I just had. I just created a really strong work ethic before I got drafted, and I was in high school and um, doing a lot more than I felt normal high school kids do. So. Um, yeah, I, I kind of just got sidetracked there. Yeah. I forget the question. No, no, you're good. I, I was just wondering if it changed your your self image oh. at all. Oh yeah, and yeah. your confidence um, level. I think I think at, at times it did. I, I I felt the confidence when I was around other people. I would say, but I never really let that like kind of blend into my my self confidence. I always felt confident around others because I was able to compete and show that I was good. But I would never able. I was never able to let it like translate to my self confidence. I still felt like I was kind of slacking in areas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you get to the minor leagues and, uh, from the article again, it says being a professional baseball player isn't only about playing baseball better than everyone else. It's accelerated adulthood. It's an 18 year old paying bills, managing disappointment, navigating politics, forging relationships, figuring out how to live in a universe decide, designed to weed out the weak. Talk to us about that first year in the minor leagues and what, what that experience was like. Um, a lot of unpreparedness, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't think things be through before they happened, so I didn't ask questions before I got to, to Arizona for my, for my rookie league, um, and I showed up with like the, mo- the least amount of equipment possible. Like I, I showed up with a glove, basically. I didn't have... And I was carrying, I carried it in like a Walmart bag to the field and I didn't have bats at the time. I didn't have like my cleats with me. And I remember like the clubhouse manager was just like, like kind of give me that look like, what are you doing, man? Like, <laughs> you just like, don't play baseball. Where's all your stuff? And like, it was just, I was so unprepared for that aspect as long as well as with life in general. Like I said, mm-hmm. I was, I mean, how many 18 year olds are prepared for that kind of stuff? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely, it definitely, uh, created some feelings of, of, of feeling lost. So it was a, uh, it was a challenge, but the Rangers did a really good job of helping us as much as they could. Um, and we, we all were just kind of growing together. And like I said, the moment I didn't realize it at, t- at, at times, but looking back, we, I had a really good group of guys around me. That was, that was helping me more than I realized. That's awesome. Yeah. Paint a picture for those that don't know what minor league life is like. I mean, unless you're in AAA or the bigs, right? It's not as glamorous just because you get drafted and you think that life is 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 all all peaches and cream. Tell us what minor league baseball life is actually like. Yeah, it's uh, it's for sure grind. Like I said in the film, I think or the article, um, you get you kind of get a taste of this this sport that you've loved your whole life, kind of turning into a job at times. And I don't say that in a bad way, but it's just there's a lot of hours spent in the field. There's a not a lot of off days. Um, I think I don't know. I don't remember the lower levels, but I know in like 
triple A and double A, we would be playing like 140 games, like a hundred and I don't know, 53 days or something crazy like that. So, um, there's not a lot of downtime and most of the time you're at the field for anywhere from 10, 11 hours at a time. And you got to come back the whole, the next day. And unfortunately just kind of paying your dues at the lower levels in the minor leagues before you start creeping into the big leagues, you're also not getting paid very well at the time. So, mm-hmm. um, you're spending a lot of time doing a lot of work, not seeing results at times while also not getting paid very well at times. So you kind of like question whether like, dang, this thing, this sport that I've been watching on TV, is this, is this really what I thought it was this whole time? Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to really be a little bit more locked tight mentally than, than you probably were able to prepare for. So did you, did you realize, okay, Hey, I, I really do love this sport because obviously your passion is going to come through in those really hard times and maybe carry you through, you know, the, the monotony of being, being at the field all the time and, okay, hey, I've got to live at a family's house or I've got to have this apartment or, or, or whatever it may be or I'm on the road all the time. Did you find that you really, truly love the game or for you was the goal, I just got to make it to the bigs? Yeah, for a while it was just make it to the bigs. Um, and now as I'm getting older, I've realized that I love baseball so much for so many different reasons that I would have ever guessed as a kid. Um, I love it for... The, the relationships with my teammates, my coaches, the interactions you have with whoever throughout the day, um, proving yourself that you can get through these really challenging times. And like, I don't know, like I said, at, at time when I was younger, I would have just guessed, yeah, I love it because you get to compete, you get to play a sport for a living and you get to do it on a, on a stage basically. Um, and those are all the things that make it the most challenging at times. So, um, I realized I, I, I did realize I love, I definitely love baseball, but it was for a lot of different reasons that I probably would have guessed. Yeah. So you had a lot of ups and downs, but then in 2017, you make the opening day roster for the Rangers. What was that like? Now you, you finally get there to the show. What was the feeling like then? I mean, I, you really can't describe it. Um, it was wild because it was kind of like, and maybe this is like my old self talking, but, my, my initial making the team or getting called up was a lot, was pretty up and down just like my minor league career. Um, because I was kind of like the last guy standing, um, for this position, but since I was kind of younger and kind of still a prospect and I was competing for a bench role, which wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to play that much. The team didn't really want me to sitting on the bench when I could have been developing more in the minor league. So we were kind of, in limbo because the team was wondering if there might be like a a release from a different team with a veteran that can come fill that bench role. So that way I can keep developing in the minor league. So, and I was aware of this, my agent and I were aware of this. So I was, it was just kind of, I don't know, like I said, my old self, I kind of spun it in a little bit of a negative because I saw like, I'm the, I'm the last option. Like I made the team because they couldn't find someone else. Mm. So I, I hate even saying that because it, it like, it's such an old mindset of focusing on the negative, mm-hmm. but that's how I handled it at the time, even though it was the most exhilarating situation and, and me accomplishing my dream that I've been working for my entire life. Um, and it was, like I said, exhilarating. It was, it was because I remember coming out of the office and just subtly texting. I did it to my family, my group message mm-hmm. and seeing their reaction and feeling their energy and seeing them, 
scramble to, to book tickets last minute to get out here, get out to Dallas and, um, got to experience like the, the whole thing that you see on, on TV was, uh, was everything I dreamed for. Yeah. You had a bomb too, didn't you? <laughs> Did you not hit a bomb? You're trying to be shy. Did you yeah. not hit a bomb that day? No. So I did it that day. You did. So my first, my first stint. So I made a team and I was there for like, I, I want to say eight days uh-huh. and I got two at bats in those days and I got out both times and I got sent down and then I came up a couple times in between and didn't play. But then June 25th, I got my first start. And my first hit was a bomb, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. amazing. Talk to us a little bit about life off the field because we just skipped over about seven Seven years years of your life there. You know, when you get drafted, you're up and down. You talked about minor leagues. You referenced that a second ago. And and people need to realize these are bus rides all across the country. They're not – you're not flying first class. Chartering planes. You're sitting on a bus all night long. You're showing up, like you said earlier, you're showing up to the field 10 hours early. You're playing your game, and guess what? You're doing all over again. It's like Groundhog Day, and you're doing yeah. that for seven years. I want people right. to understand that it's not—it's not like you got called up yeah. immediately. So, what was your mental like off the field, and how much? Of the, how much during that time? When were you thinking, man? I, maybe I should go on the college route. Maybe this this minor league deal is not all that great. I never, I never really had the thought that I should have gone to college. Um, I thought that it was working out for me. And I always kind of had this sense that it might work out even in, even in between being like super negative and being hard on myself. Um, I always kind of had this really small belief that somehow I'm going to figure it out because I did, I did have two horrible seasons in the minor leagues of hitting under 200 for the whole season. So I definitely had a roller coaster of, of a career in the minor leagues from a performance standpoint and an even more so roller coaster career men- mentally. So um, but yeah, like, like you, like you mentioned, it's a lot of bus rides. It's a lot of, and those people hear that and think, well, okay, but it's, it's, it's a bus ride after you just got done playing a game and the, the bus is leaving at midnight and you're driving from midnight until 8am, 9am the next mm. morning, getting into the hotel, having breakfast, taking a quick nap. And then you're at the field again at 2pm for the game that in a different city that starts at seven o'clock that next night. So, um, at the same time, like that's what we sign up for. But like I said, you just, you can't prepare for that without having to go through it. So, um, it's, it's a grind. There's really no other way. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of time to think. I mean, there's a lot of time inside your own head. So tell us what was that was like. Then you you mix in two seasons of hitting under 200 being the worst performance player in the league. Mm -hmm. You can imagine where my mind would go. And Mm -hmm. because you're sitting on the buses and most of the time it's either you got a movie going or music going or whatever, but sometimes you just kind of sit there and just kind of drown in your thoughts of questioning, am I, am I even good at baseball anymore? Is mm. this like, is this over after this year or is this over any, any day now when I'm about to get released? Like, can I go become a, should I go back to school and become a firefighter? Like all these thoughts just constantly circled through my head. So um, you're right. Like there was times where I just was totally spiraling and not able to control anything from a mental standpoint. Mm-hmm. So we're going back to Jeff Passon's ESPN article. Although Drew acted like he belonged, he still felt otherwise. The companion's voice was unrelenting. It had accompanied him from childhood to adulthood. It was totally paralyzing. Drew says in the clubhouse, he questioned every answer he gave to reporters. On the field, he second-guessed uh, minutia. minutia. 
That's a word. It's <laughs> a big word. <laughs> how he stood during the national anthem, how he looked running, at, running to his position between innings. At home, he wondered why Diana bothered, him, bothered with him. Why does everything suck? Why is this happening to me? Is there something I'm, I'm doing wrong? Why can't you just be real with everyone and let them know how much you hate yourself? I mean, so many ups and downs, man. I mean, I, I'm reading this, and it's like, it's, you know, how old were you at this time, Drew? This was, that was pretty consistent from high school. That is when, it, like I said, even though I was dominating in high school, my junior and senior year, I was still, like, freak out every out. And so I, I think it, it started in high school, and I would just go through these phases of just being really immature and not have a grip on my my emotions at all. So did you have a grip on those emotions when you're in the 2018 season in, in, in those seasons when you're a pro now you're you're becoming you know you're going through this the system here you can't you weren't acting the same you weren't acting out those those emotions you know outwardly right. how were you handling the 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 negativity that was happening in your career? Yeah about around that time and a couple of years before probably is when I started getting around older players um, on my team, I was able to like kind of learn from example and I was just getting older myself. So I was maybe just naturally growing up and being able to control my emotions at times. But what I was doing internally was just stuffing those emotions down and never talking about them. So it, it from the outside, it probably looked like I was growing up, learning my lessons and like taking taking each loss with the win, like whatever, just going through the, through the process. But I was just stuffing things down and just never addressing them and never um, appreciating the process for what it was. So I was basically growing numb to everything, um, good and bad. Like I, I just, it, it's unfortunate, but at times I, I was like, I would do something really good on the baseball field or in life and I would just kind of just roll with it. Like, yeah, okay, that's supposed to happen. I, I tried to do that. And then when something bad would happen, I would just say, that's just, that's just life, like whatever. And that just created a very numb sensation where I, the only room, the only, the only space I had allowed to kind of feel things was just like misery kind of. And it's, uh, Mm -hmm. it's tough to say. And it's hard to say now because I feel like I've outgrown all those things. And it's like, at times I realized that that was just so irrational, but in the moment I was just so negative and created such a pessimistic look on life that I, I did better. I understood, I knew that I, things felt better when I just distracted myself and just kind of put things to the side. And unfortunately that's what led to an eventual blow up. So did anyone see this that, taking place that the own did, did the, the, the baseball team, the organization see anything? Did, did Diana see anything that was just uncommon with you and how you handled these situations? Not to, not to as, extreme of a situation as I got to, but I think Diana was aware. Um, she just always knew that there was more to me than what I kind of portrayed. And that was tough for her because I think she knew that. And she almost at times knew me better than I knew myself. So that's, I think that's part of the reason why she was always so patient with me and so caring and wanting to make sure I was okay, because she knew that there was something stronger happening within me in a negative way. Um, but for other people, I, I don't think any, any chance because again, this is me looking back, but 
when I would get to the field and I would get to, I don't know, hangouts with friends and dinners with family or whatever it be, like those situations, that like happy mentality, like the goofy, like the goofball of the group, all these things, they just naturally came out of me. And unfortunately I questioned that when I would go home that, that, that night or whatever and wonder if I was fake or not. But looking back, I realized that that was the realest thing about me. Um, I enjoyed making people laugh. I enjoyed making people feel good about themselves and give them a moment in the day that, that made them, made them happy. So, um, I don't think anyone could have ever seen it coming though. So from a relationship with, uh, with Diana, what, you know, you had ups and downs in, in the majors and minors. Was there ups and downs at home as well with her? Yeah. Um, because all this was happening and because I was doubting everything at almost every second of the day, I would doubt our relationship. Um, and anytime that we, I don't know, anytime we didn't see anything eye to eye, I would just jump straight to, we're not right for each other. And because I was also so closed off from an emotion standpoint, I, I didn't allow her to, I didn't let her in to, to kind of show her, her side of things, which was, the most compassionate person, the most empathetic person that I've ever met. Um, and I just, I was, like I said, I was so blocked off and closed off mentally with my emotions that I, when she would try to do those things, I would just, I would just jump to, no, that's so weak. Like, no, I can take care of myself. No, I can do this myself. I don't need you. And it was just, of course, the most uh, unhealthy habit that I had. And I just constantly thought that meant that we weren't right for each other. And I would just do anything I could to push her away. And, um, it definitely caused, obviously, as you can understand that caused a lot of, um, ups and downs in our relationship. And it was, it was all me. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to swap, yeah. but it, yeah. uh, that's just how it was. Yeah. So yeah. in 2018, you get traded to the Cardinals. Um, and then in 2019, you get released by the Cardinals. And what did that look like? I mean, you get released. What was the next step? Yeah, I'd come home and continue with my rehab. I was I had gotten released because I was hurt. I, I needed a surgery on my non-throwing elbow. And like I at that time in my career I kind of knew the protocol. Like I knew that being hurt at the age I was in and at the age I was at and in the, the time frame of my career I was in, I understood being released was pretty pretty normal. Um that didn't make it any easier though. I came home, I was home early because of my surgery. So I was at home in, uh, I think it was August for the first time in since, since high school. Um, I was watching games on TV. I was keeping up with my teammates in the minor leagues. I was seeing all baseball happening still. And I just felt so left out. And, um, I thought that I was okay. Like I, like I said, cause I knew that I knew that was part of it. I thought that I was okay with it, but, um, kind of feeling that, kind of lose, losing grip of my career was uh, really re- was really scary. And because I put so much into baseball and I didn't do anything to prepare for after baseball, it was so scary because I, I, I was always on the, under the assumption that once baseball's over, my life is over. Any uh, thought? Did you have any thought that, you know, there's something else that you may have wanted to go do something else outside of baseball? That's, I always thought that I would make a good firefighter just because of I care about people and I want to help people. And I just the kind of like having to rely on a team. I was good at that concept because of sports. But um, 
again, at that time in my life, I was still so negative that I, I completely convinced myself that the only thing I would be good at in life is baseball. So yeah. I, I would, I would think I would start thinking about those things and I would just quit because I would wouldn't prepare or do anything farther than uh, think about it because I would just stop myself and say, keep dreaming. Like your only thing you're good at is baseball. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to read something real quick and then have a quick comment. So um, about this time, released from the Cardinals, going recovering from an injury, uh, the article says, Drew grew more depressed. His suicidal uh, ideation intensified. He understood he needed help. He started to see a therapist. He read self-development uh, books. He wanted to see himself the way he believed everyone else saw themselves. So – you're you're starting to recognize that depression is a real a real thing. Is this the first time in your life that you're like, okay, instead of just stuffing these feelings down, this is a real issue that I've got to address? It was the first time that I, that I took real action um, before the two thousand in between the two thousand seventeen two thousand eighteen season. Um, I realized that I was dealing with some pretty severe anxiety, and I reached out to the Rangers medical staff and. I actually got started on an antidepressant, and so I gave that a run, and it it did what it was supposed to do. But I again, I was I just didn't process things for what they were, and I just kind of I was under the the stigma of what a lot of people are thinking an antidepressant that's like that's just weak, like that's weakness. He needs that, and like no, that's just just tough through it. Um, so I I stopped that unfortunately, and then again. After that season, 2019, I realized things were getting serious, and I was also again questioning my relationship with Diana. At that time, we were engaged, we were planning a wedding, and I went down that same rabbit hole of, of self of questioning our relationships, questioning questioning myself, and I was just I was just spiraling big time. And around around that time, my sister had kind of mentioned to me that my brother was also struggling a little bit and he, he reached out for, to counseling. And I just thought that was like so cool because again, it's my brother. Like I look up to him so much, even to this day. And because he did it, I felt comfortable enough to do it myself. And unfortunately I did all that work and read all those books and, and looked at it with a pessimistic mindset again, as look at how far away I am from where I want to be. All this work I'm doing, I still feel like crap. And instead mm. of just understanding that that's kind of part of the process, you have to kind of get everything out first and let it all on the table and address them. And then that's when things start getting a little bit ironed out and you start understanding why those things are happening within you and why they're feeling this way and what you can do to kind of help make them feel better. So I just kind of, I knew I needed help, but I wasn't able to do it in the right way. And I just, again, I just kept on spiraling and, and not, I really wasn't as open as I needed to be. I was in therapy, but I was still holding a lot of things back. So that was definitely where a place where I fell short in addressing my mental health because I, mm. I was seeking help, but I wasn't really asking for help. So, so, uh, about that time. So January of 2020, uh, you sign a non-guaranteed contract with the giants. So you went through rehab and you're like, okay, great. Now I've, I've got the opportunity to get back, get back to the bigs, mm. Uh, work my way back in. Great. This is what I want. But then obviously March, 2020 COVID hits uh, and everything just comes to a screeching halt. 
Um, I'm going to read another excerpt from the article uh, right now. Drew returned to Las Vegas to an empty house, to loneliness, to loneliness, to not knowing who he was. A week later, he went to a gun store to purchase a weapon. He returned March 30th to pick it up. He had no distractions, none of those surface-level conversations or jokes or light moments. He couldn't go to the stadium. He couldn't meet with friends. He couldn't go out, just him and his thoughts that he had built up for two decades. Um, like a lot of people um, have, have dealt with depression, COVID just intensified that. Um, the time by yourself, in your head, thinking through scenarios, um, it's a really tough time. Talk us through, which now brings us to, to April 16th, 2020. Talk us through that day. Talk us through your mindset um, you know, after, after picking up the gun, because obviously, you know, this is, this is something that you've been thinking about. Talk to us how you got there first of all, and then talk us through that day. Yeah. I mean, the, the suicidal thoughts really increased pretty much the day I left Vegas to go to spring training. Um, I remember it's almost like the, the drive out to spring training was my first alone time and first like real quiet time after calling off the wedding, um, to, to an amazing person. So again, I was just doubting everything, second guessing myself. And I just, I just felt like I was failing at everything, everything I touched, I thought I was making it worse. And I start, like I said, I, I, the suicidal thoughts started to really come to a more concrete possibility where instead of just like passive am I meant to be here like what am I doing here kind of kind of thoughts it was more like I wonder if I can actually like end this and unfortunately that happened when I was by myself but again when I would get to go to the stadium and get to do all these things I was able to let my real self come out and interact with people and and do what I needed to do to possibly succeed at baseball so once that kind of got taken away from me and everyone else in this, in this country, unfortunately, but because I w- it was just all so fresh a month later, I, I come home to my house being empty. I, I just, I, I bought a house a couple of years prior and I only knew it with Diana and our dogs. So first time I walked into the house and didn't hear my dog's fo- footsteps coming to me at the door, just complete silentness. And then also walking in to see like a little care package from Diana to help me with my first couple days of quarantine, because at that time, toilet paper was hard to get food was like all these things. So having a little care package from Diana was only another punch to the gut. Like my gosh, this amazing person. She's still doing all these things for me after all this stuff I put her through again, just led to more self-criticism and just unrelenting bashing of myself of how bad of a person I am. So that was the start of my quarantine. (laughs) Um, It led to a month of a lot of drinking a lot of reaching out to try to distract myself as much as I can. Um, I, I, my sister and I worked to get a foster dog to help me, maybe possibly help me with my loneliness and it didn't work out that well. And then even later on in the, in the quarantine, I actually reached out to a breeder to try to get a, a new dog. And that was on April 13th. I went to go pick up this puppy and I had obviously had plenty of, 
guilt built up at that time, knowing that there was a possibility of doing what I ended up doing. But for some reason, the, the puppy was just like too much. I was there getting ready to take this dog home. And I just like had a realization that I'm going to do this soon and I can't leave this mm. new puppy by itself. Wow. Um, even though, which is really crazy to me to think about because if I couldn't do it to a puppy, why could I do it to my family? Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's tough, man. I, uh, I don't even understand how that, how it goes to my mind, but at the time it just felt so real and so needed because I was in so much inter- internal misery. I, I just felt so bad about myself and that led to the next couple of days of working on a note and trying to justify, not justify, try to explain what was going on in my mind. So that way there was as little amount of question as possible for the people that I was basically going to be leaving behind. And, um, I knew that it didn't justify it. And I know that they never made it okay to do what I did, but, um, I just, I, like I said, I couldn't take it anymore. And I think the first sentence of my note was, I can't explain why I hate myself so much, but I can't take it anymore. So that was where my note started. And it led to a lot of, a lot of explaining and, looking back, realizing not enough justifying, which nothing would have justified that, but I just wanted to try to make it as easy as possible for such an extreme thing. And, um, that led to April 16th. And once I finished the note that morning, I knew that I technically had nothing else left to do besides, besides do it. So I, uh, I attempted to go do it in my truck somewhere else. So that way there was less of a, horrific scene to walk into for someone maybe a stranger can find me and I want to have to traumatize someone my family or friend even more but I was uncomfortable doing it in my truck so I came home and ended up attempting suicide and shooting myself in the head on April 16th around 8 p.m. Was there any thought when you were going through this you're writing a note that uh of just about the pain the pain not your pain but but your family's pain yeah, that was the only thing on my mind. I I can't describe it, and it's it's hard because it seems like such a selfish act, right? But I was so not thinking about myself. Uh, I'm not sorry. That's not right. I was so only thinking about my family in that time, and my anyone who has supported me or helped me in my life. I I I thought about people that I had conversations with in third grade. I, I thought about everyone throughout those however many days in quarantine that if I did end up doing it, those people that I would be affecting. And I couldn't, I, I just couldn't get over. Well, obviously I could get over, but I, I, I couldn't stop thinking about my family, Diana, my friends, my coaches, teammates, everyone that had been around me and just giving like, just putting my ego to the side and realizing that that would have just devastated them. But like I said, I was in so much internal battle with myself that I was so mentally exhausted and just exhausted that led to physical exhaustion as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't take it anymore that time. And unfortunately I just led to a horrible decision. What did, before we're going to read a little bit more, but, what did you think of death? Like you said, you spent all that time thinking of your, your family. Did you spend any time thinking about what happens after I do this? Did that ever cross your mind? Not specifically that, but 
when the suicidal thoughts got more, more realistic, I realized I was a lot more, uh, like makes my skin crawl even thinking about this, but I was like comfortable with death. I, I kind of welcomed it. I want, like, I remember at times when I was questioning it and like ha- thinking about having to actually do it myself where I would think, man, maybe I can just get in a car accident today. Maybe some like, so I don't have to actually do it. Mm-hmm. And then like the idea of like being comforted by this for some reason, it just, it felt more comfortable than just trying to struggle through these thoughts in these, in this like internal fight that I was always having. And, um, that's crazy. I mean, like, just like everyone else, like death is a really scary thing, but for some reason around mid February, that switched to, that's like what I feel like I wanted. Yeah. So going back to the article, so you, you, you always say you, you were drinking a glass of whiskey, you set it down, you reach down, you pick up the gun and you shoot. And the article says at just past 8 PM on April 16th, Drew looked around. He was confused. What happened? Why am I still here? He saw blood everywhere. He wanted to wipe it up. Get off the couch, he told himself. Maybe someone will want to keep it. He lay on the hardwood floor. 30 minutes passed. He held his head, tried to stem the bleeding. He grabbed a dirty towel. It didn't help. He decided to shower. When he stepped in, disorientation hit. He slipped and smacked his head on the handle, square on the entry wound. It still didn't hurt. How? Why? He curled in a ball on the shower floor. The water ran over him. He dried off and collapsed on his bed. The blood in his mouth turned his stomach, so he returned to the bathroom. He didn't want to throw up on the carpet. More cleanup for his family. As he bent over the toilet, his head struck the porcelain. He, he peeled himself up and tried to brush his teeth. How ridiculous, he thought. Guy with a hole in his head, brushing his teeth. Instead, he, he glugged mouthwash to drown out the taste. He shoved toilet paper up his nostrils to keep the blood from dripping down his throat. Back to the bedroom. It was around midnight. Four hours after he pulled the trigger, as Drew closed his eyes, he thought, this is where I'm going to die. Uh, man, you can't imagine how hard that is to read. Yeah. Sorry um, to hear. No, I'm sorry about that, man. Yeah, no, it really is. And, um, you know, you go through this situation, and there's so much to peel back, man. It really is. In, in those situations, it's, you know, this happens, and, and then you go through these steps, you get in the shower, you clean up, you brush your teeth. I mean, what, what is going through? Yeah, and, and to me, it's everything is about everyone else. Yeah. Here, you have a, a gun wound to your head. The expectation is that it's all going to be over, and it's not. But all you're thinking about yeah. is it's a mess for someone else. else. Yes. They it's may amazing. want this. So, I mean, to question is that I have, as you're going through this, at what point, when did it register that, man, this isn't it for me? There's more. Or was it, when was that when those thoughts actually came back into your, into your mind? 
What do you mean exactly? I'm sorry. It's right. So, so you're you're going through and, and you're in the shower and you're you're uh, gargling mouthwash and and you think that hey, I'm going to die, but I just haven't yet. At what point did you realize I'm supposed to live? So in the moment, it was around 11, 30, 12 o'clock the next day when I looked at myself in the mirror for the first time and had a thought towards the future regarding baseball. That was like when it clicked in the moment. But looking back, I was doing all kinds of things looking towards the future and, and realizing I was meant to live. I, I mean, yeah, most of all my, in the moment, all my thoughts were to clean up and not make a mess for my family, for people to clean up, like just make it as easy as possible. If someone wanted to, if my family wanted to sell the couch, like everything was mm, for other people in the moment. But a part of me also has realized that a lot of those things was myself, like my subconscious realizing that I was meant to live this whole time. And it was a survival instinct. Um, I was drinking it. I, the next morning I woke and I woke up somehow. I, I drank a bunch of water cause I thought that I had, since I lost so much blood, I needed to hydrate myself someone who is ready to die doesn't do that. That's right. right. Yeah. So I've realized that I was doing a lot of things to say to a lot of things leading towards life before then, before it finally hit me in the mirror when I was thinking about not being able to play baseball again. And then I caught myself and I was like, Oh my, like in this moment we're, we're worried about playing baseball. And then I caught myself again and thought, well, if we're thinking about playing baseball, then we must be thinking towards the future and surviving this. So what are we going to do? So, that's when it kind of clicked. And then, and then there was a, a time frame of a couple hours of wondering if that's really what I wanted. So I was, I laid there for a couple more hours trying to contemplate going back and forth, which decision I wanted to make. Cause most of the morning I was in, I was in so much pain the next morning that I had plenty, I had a ton of thoughts of just doing it again, just mm. from a pure take me out of my misery type mindset. So, um, from basically from noon until about three fifteen ish, there was just it was only two thoughts going through my mind was trying again or or calling nine one one, and I think the craziest thing about that whole morning was around I want to say it was like around nine thirty. I was laying a lot of times. I was also laying on the floor of my bed because I didn't want to or at the floor of my room because I didn't want to dirty my bed because mm. again like I didn't want to maybe my family would use it or sell it. Um, but I heard, I was laying on the floor and I heard my phone go off. Didn't think anything of it, but later in the, so when I was walking back from the living room into the eventual uh, mirror time in my, in my bathroom, I had grabbed my phone uh, around that time too. And after I had the moment in the mirror, I went and laid on my bed and checked my phone for the first time. And there was a met two messages from my dad. First one was, Hey, is it okay to use a garage in 10 minutes? And while I was laying on the floor earlier, like around nine 30 again, I remember hearing like I, I was hearing banging outside, but I was like, I remember thinking like, dang, that sounds very close to my house. Like, what is that? Um, but again, like obviously circumstances, I didn't go look, but, and then the second text message was from my dad said, thanks. Uh, see you later or something. It was something, but just saying, thank you. So my dad was at my house working out in my garage while all this was unfolding. Oh. And I just, it's so just, it just blows my mind. The idea of maybe him walking in and he wouldn't, that's the thing. That's the kind of guy he is. He's just so 
respectful that he wouldn't have come in without permission. But if for some reason he did and he walked in on that and saw that, I just, I can't even imagine what a father would have done. And uh, especially someone who cares about me as much as a father that cares about me as much as he does. So um, all that was happening and yeah, leading up to about three o'clock, um, I made my way back out to the couch because I knew, again, I was in so much pain and I was just suffering physically as much as I was mentally finally. And, um, I made it out to the couch where my gun was and where I did it the night before and held my gun in my left hand and held my phone bowed and I don't want my right hand and just sat there and stared at them for 15, 20 minutes and eventually chose life. Mm. Oh, man. So you chose life. That is beautiful. That is beautiful, man. That really is. And, you know, so who was the next call to? Was it, did you call family? Did you call paramed- the, the paramedics? No, yeah. I called, yeah, I called 911. Um, stayed on the phone with the dispatcher for the time that it took for police to arrive at my house. Um, I want to say it was about 10 to 12 minutes from the, the initial call until someone, until the, the crew or the, the, the police were at my house and they sent, they sent plenty of, of backup because initially they thought this was either a hostage situation or an ambush because who can shoot themselves the night before survive, think coherently enough to call themselves. Like it's mm-hmm. not, it's not believable. So this, there must, this must be something else. So they came in guns blazing and, um, sent about 15 cops, 15, 18 cops, something like that. And I'm ready for some kind of a movie scene. <laughs> so, so they come in, take you to the hospital. Um, what was that first conversation like with your family? So when I got to the hospital, I remember the last real, like the last like part of my really good memory of this whole thing was being wheeled through the, the doors of the hospital from then until after I woke up to my first surgery, my, my memory is kind of in and out. And I remember two separate times trying to hold the phone up to my face while I was in the hospital before my surgery. Um, and it just hurting really bad. So I remember that. And then later on, like having conversations with my family, piecing it together, that, that those are phone calls with my, with my brother and my best and one of my best friends. Um, and once my brother refreshed my memory of what we talked about, it's just, uh, it's powerful stuff, man. I, he calls to try to figure out what's happening, obviously, because he, unfortunately this kind of spread quickly. And there was some rumor, like the news had spread relatively quickly throughout the city, especially the baseball community that something serious had happened to me. So my brother was calling everywhere, finally got a hold of UMC and got a hold of me because before he called UMC, they UMC is the hospital that I was at. They called my sister because I had put her as my emergency contact, but I said, don't tell her what happened. And since I was an adult, they respected that, but they, they were able to call and tell her that we have your brother and he's alive and breathing. But that was the only thing they were able to tell her. So of course that like, what do you mean? (laughs) Like I need more, but because I said, I don't want to, anyone to know yet they couldn't tell her so her and my brother freaking out trying to figure out what's happening so my brother eventually gets through to me and i just tell him yeah it's it's true like what you've heard is true um 
and we have a little conversation and he's trying to put things, wrap his head around it. And I didn't remember this until he told me, but then it, it clicked. Uh, it like kind of came back to me after we had some conversations after I eventually got home. But at one point in the conversation, he was talking and all I just, I just, I just started repeating. I meant to be alive, Chad. I meant to be alive. And it just got stronger and louder with it. And I meant to be alive. I meant to be alive he was talking the whole time. He's trying to figure things out. And I just kept on saying, I meant to be alive. And before then I was, that was before I was even really addressed from a medical standpoint. I wasn't, I didn't go to my first surgery yet. I was still getting analyzed and it's just part. It was just kind of like the start of this powerful experience of awakening, I guess. And like, um, understanding my true calling. So how many surgeries did you, did you go through through this process? I ended up having four, which to me is another miracle in itself mm-hmm. um, to only have four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen the pictures of when I first got to the hospital and what I looked like and obviously understanding what I did to only have four surgeries. And one of them was, was uh, two months, almost two months after. So to only have to really go through three surgeries was uh, pretty insane to me. Right. So I had the first one to try to control the damage and the trauma uh, that, that night and try to salvage my right eye. And then a couple of days later, I had some, like the eye socket reconstruction and put some plates and screws in my face. And then um, I had a spinal tap because I, I had some fractures at the base of my skull that was creating some cerebral spinal fluid leakage, which is the more severe concern at that time. Um, but luckily those, those fractures kind of healed up naturally and the, the leakage stopped after some time. And, um, that led to the eventual June 11th removal of my right eye. So, um, all things considered besides the amount of pain that I was in for months, it was, it's just, it's just mind blowing. It's nothing about it makes any sense on paper. I want to. All right. That, that was, by the way, I mean, the amount of strength that it took just to get through that mm-hmm. um, is incredible. Um, but, man. I, I think it's important to note how it empowers me. Um, I've been very fortunate that waking up from my first surgery, I felt that that sense of strength and empowerment and the understanding that I can, that this was supposed to happen for whatever mm-hmm. reason and to use it in a positive way to help people not have to go through that to kind of feel this enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just think it's important to note that I'm like totally empowered by this whole yeah. process. Yeah. I love it's, hard, that. it's really hard to talk about and it's hard to put myself back in some of those things. But mm-hmm. the more I talk about it, the more clear it gets, the more, the more I, I feel like I heal and the more mm-hmm. I see the, the direction that this can go to help people and that, yeah completely empowers me well and what i was gonna say was not only just the strength you know to physically get through it right but man the strength to come on here and talk about that Mm -hmm. and the strength immediately to recognize that okay i can now be vulnerable i spent my entire life hiding you know how i really truly felt trying to be tough trying to be strong and then the strength to say, no, like i can talk about this the most vulnerable moment in my entire life now i'm putting it out there so I can potentially save someone else from from going through what I did, and you know, or or ultimately ending their life. So first of all, I want to commend you. 
for that. And then I think Ben, you had a yeah. Just just talk to us about the last you know nine ten months. You know, we talked about the physical rehab, but the mental side. What have you been doing? How have you been improving on that side? And then, like you said, what, what's next? Like, what do you want people to learn from this? I've done. I've just been doing a lot. Anything that I can think of that seems like it would help me mentally. Um, I've gotten really consistent with journaling, meditating, um, taking some days completely to myself, like basically saying no to people at times to have some alone time. Um, I've been insanely consistent with therapy sessions. Um, I've been lucky enough to have a, a team psychologist with the giants who's very open to meeting with me. And I've also kept up with a psychiatrist um, in Vegas. So I've been doing that weekly since, what, since May. So just finding a routine and kind of believing in it. And I've gone through plenty of ups and downs since then. Um, I've gone through two separate phases of depression where I kind of started doubting myself or second-guessing myself again. And both of those times were when I kind of slacked on my, on my routine and my mental practices, which has only, which has only, um, reinforced the power behind these mental practices that I've been practicing. So, um, it's, it's crazy because sometimes when I'm doing them, it doesn't feel like I get anything out of it right then, but it's more after the fact and what it like trickles into later in the day and later in my weeks and, and eventually into my moods. Um, so, that's what I've been up to, along with attempting the comeback of all comebacks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's let's dig into that, yeah. man. Like, let's dig into to uh, that that baseball comeback. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's also important to like what you me ask, like what what I want people to know from this is. Yeah. It's interesting because even in the U sixty interviews and and doing interviews since this the, the release. I keep on trying to find like earth shattering quotes and life changing advice and how to word these things to make it click with someone. But I've been in those shoes where I've heard like pretty inspiring things. And because I was so lost, I just, I was, again, I was like closed off where I wouldn't even accept them. So I always come back to just talk to someone, just people who are struggling, who feel some, anything similar to what I was going through, self hate, work, hopelessness, whatever, just talk to someone like literally anybody. Um, it doesn't need to be a professional setting. It doesn't need to be a family that like someone, but if you're lucky enough to have a family member, talk to them. If you're lucky enough to be able to set up an appointment to see a therapist, put the ego to the side and just talk to someone. And I promise you it'll save your life. Yeah. There's so many, you know, kids that are out there that, you know, specifically in high school here in, in Texas where, where we are, We've had so much, you know, suicide has been a, it's just been a big part of the last few years. And it's just like, it's gotten bigger and bigger, specifically through COVID and all. And your message and, and your ability to stand here, like Tyler said, and, and, and have these conversations, man, are inspiring. It really are because there's so many kids yeah. and, and adults that are out there that are battling depression. And like you said, your message is just talk, communicate. Have that conversation. And it's not, maybe that's not the, 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 the end all, but that's, you know, that's a start. Yeah, that's yeah, a start. It's the best starting point. Yeah. It's just, 
it's strong. It is seriously the strongest thing you can do. You can't pour from an empty cup. So if you're trying to take care of people around you, if you're trying to take care of yourself, but you don't put the work in, you can't pour yourself into or pour yourself into yourself. Like you can't do it from an empty cup. So having a little bit of a fuel tank from some of these practices of self-love and, and um, putting like I said, putting the ego to the side, which is a big one. That's, I still struggle with that big time today. And um, that was the biggest thing that was holding me back before. I just had this sense of like what you're supposed to do, what life's really like, like, no, it's supposed to be hard. It's, if it was easy, everyone would do it, which is true to a sense, but there's also a balance of not doing it to a level where you're completely tearing yourself down. So put the ego to the side, practice some self love and do some of the things that feel really corny at first, but eventually it'll get to a point where you'll feel weird not doing them. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of vulnerability, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that your brother, it was, it was really encouraging to you for your brother to admit, Hey, I need to go talk to somebody and, and think about the, the impact you can make to yourself and to others around you. If you are vulnerable and do have those conversations, I just think about, you know, depression is, is like you, you mentioned, Oh, that's weak, right? Like that, that's weakness. Don't, don't address that. But the reality is, is, is Drew, as you're talking, 95% of the thoughts that were going through your head in high school, I've had those same thoughts. Yeah. Literally standing on the sideline, national anthem, I'm thinking, okay, I mean, do I look like a football player standing next to Tyron Smith? Do, do I belong here? Do I this? Like I have had those thoughts my entire life going through my head. And, you know, I've had – I was lucky to have people that I could have those conversations right. with. But for so long – you have to be tough and you have to be this warrior that, that doesn't have any weakness. And I think that couldn't be further from the truth. I think the true warriors are the ones that can have these conversations right, right now yeah. and share right. the That's things that you struggle with. The balance is like, there's times where toughness calls, but there's also a lot of times that that vulnerability mm -hmm. calls and being real with yourself and knowing that you can help yourself here. And um, like I said, it's, it's a total strength. Like, I kind of described it a couple of times where like if you, for me, it's baseball is easy to talk about, but if my teammate is able to hit 50 home runs in a season, that's, that's like one of the most impressive things. That's a skill set. Not everyone, because not everyone is able to do it at that time. So in the same way, if someone that reaches out for help compared to like the rest of the room who feels it's uncomfortable to reach out, that person is able to do something that not a lot of That's other right. people are able That's to do. Really good, Why man. isn't that considered a skill set and a strength? Yeah. So, and you can look at it a bunch of different ways in comparison with like going to the gym. You mentioned, if you mentioned to one of your coworkers, your teammates, I just ran five miles this morning. Everyone's going to say like, Oh man, congrats. Like good for you. That's, that's awesome. I wish I could do that this morning or whatever. If you come in and say the same thing, I just went and did some, I just did a mental practice today. They'd probably say, Oh, that's great too. But if you, as soon as you mention yeah, my mental practice was therapy. I, I feel like there's like a, almost like a hesitation, like, mm. Oh, mm. it's something like, okay. Mm. But I want to get it to the point where it's like talked about in the same like casual way as going to the gym. Like, yeah, I got to go to the gym today. So I can't come today. Same way as I can't, sorry, I can't come tonight. I have a, a I have a mental, I have a therapy session with mm -hmm. my therapist. Like right. just yeah. be strong with it and be confident in it because yeah. like I said, you're helping yourself. And once you help yourself, you're able to help the people around you, which is what a lot of people really want. They want to be able to help right. other people around them. Yeah. So the moment you, you start to, you decide to take care of yourself and help yourself, it bleeds into your relationships, 
your interactions with whoever and you start to end up taking care of other people by, by leading by example. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well said. So what's next, man? What's next on the path? Yeah, talk talk to Robinson. us about the comeback of the century. Yeah. Baseball. Um, it's back. I, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to come out of this besides losing my eye, all my, my body functionality is all normal. So I'm able to practice. I'm able to work out, I've been able to do everything I could normally would. And I've basically been in an off season regimen since July, which was, which is when I was clear to start doing activity. And it kind of started as it really started as me going to say goodbye to baseball. The first time I went to the cages, I, I just lost an eye. I went through what I went through. I just, I was under the impression like baseball's over. So I wanted to kind of say goodbye to it. So I went to the cages and took a couple of swings to have that last little feeling of whatever, making contact with the bat and ball and what, and whatnot, and just closing that chapter of my life. Um, but I got to the, I got to the cages and took a couple of swings and visually it felt pretty similar. So I was like, wait a minute, like, let me <laughs> go back and flip a couple to me. Let me see if I can track a couple. Same thing. Visually, it felt pretty similar. And this is after laying basically laying down flat for like four, uh, like three months. So I was like, okay, well that felt whatever. I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. Let me see if this was just a fluke. The next day I had my guys that helped me at the cages throw me some overhand batting practice. And again, it felt pretty similar visually. So I was like, am I crazy to think that I can, like, maybe I can try to play with one eye. Like mm. that was very early on. Obviously I had just lost like 28 pounds. I was skinny. I was, had a bunch of challenges ahead of me. I was still in a crazy amount of pain daily. And, uh, but baseball was always there for me. <laughs> and I was just thinking how crazy would it be to try to play again? And I, I kind of, I kind of ease into it, but then literally within maybe three, two or three weeks, I was full blood, full. I was fully convinced myself that I could play baseball again. And, uh, this was not too long after having trouble filling up a cup of water in the sink with that perception. So the fact that I went from having trouble filling a cup of water to a couple of months later, tracking baseball, making contact with it consistently to now almost a year later, um, taking live at bats off pitching, tracking off speed pitches, deciding whether to swing or not at, uh, balls and strikes and eventually convincing the giants to give me a minor league contract and let me prove myself and prove to them that I am capable of doing this. Um, the, yeah, the next step is spring training whenever minor league spring training starts and this comeback oh is, is happening. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's unreal, man. Because oh. logistically, like, your right eye is your lead eye as a lefty hitter, so you're dealing right. with that challenge. You're an outfielder, so you're dealing with trying to catch fly balls. I mean, that's unbelievable. That is, I mean, so many guys with, with both eyes, it's it's. Really, I was just really going to say, I had to quit baseball because I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't try. It's amazing that you're able to do any of that yeah. with just one eye. Man, Unbelievable. I, want, I want you to know, man, you have three of your biggest fans sitting yes, on this you side do, right Drew. here, man. You got four, actually. The other one's sitting there yep. behind the mic, so... But, man, we're, we are so excited to follow your journey, not only on the field for sure, but, man, we're, we're excited to, to follow the impact that you're making, um, you know, in, in the mental health space. And, and for those individuals that, that, 
that are, are are really thinking, you know, the things that you did and, and the impact that you're going to make, man. I am I'm so excited for that. I'm excited for the movie that they're going to make about mm. you. It hasn't been announced yet or <laughs> written, but there is for sure one. Um, if you need a body double, Ben said he's in. For yeah, sure. I'm in. I'll come train with you, man. Yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna finish it with with one final quote from the article. But before we get there and. and you mentioned you're a big fan of the Darren Woodson show. We appreciate that, by the way. <laughs> so you may have heard this question before, but if Drew today could go back and talk to Drew at any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? You guys got time for another episode? <laughs> <laughs> for sure, brother. For yes, sure. We absolutely want you Where back on. Where do I start on. with that? I think it's, uh, to make it simple, like I said, it would, to reach out to help and let people know. Because I, like I said, I, I've done that so far since the incident. I've, I, I said it straight up to Diana and my family, you guys, I'm depressed again and I'm having some dark thoughts again. And, for whatever reason, just getting it out, it just gives you a sense of like clarity and a sense of like, like a moment of, of, uh, like freedom, I guess. I don't know. I, and I, I think it's interesting too, because people do it a lot more than they realize. Like how yeah. many times have you listened to a friend or a coworker just vent about something that annoyed them early in the day? That's a, that's the same thing. That's the same idea as therapy. You just go out and just, you go there, you just get things out and off your chest and, you don't even understand why, like same thing as venting. Like you don't know why, but you just tell someone, God, oh, this person cut me off on the way to work today. For some reason that makes you feel better. And it's the same way with like therapy and, and whatever. Like, so what I'm saying is just talk to someone. I would have told myself to reach out, tell my dad or tell one of my best friends, like, do you guys think that I'm as dumb as I think I am? Or do you guys like, just get real with someone and get comfortable having those uncomfortable talks because in the end it helps you grow. And it's, again, it's uncomfortable at first, but at one point it'll get to, to the level of it feels, it feels weird not to do it. So just take that first step of really of, of, of uncomfortableness and just let it ride and start believing in yourself because you're a pretty good person. Drew, what That's did awesome. you say to your brother when he called? I want you to say that again. When you talk to your brother, what were you saying to him? I'm meant to be alive, Chad. I'm meant to be alive. I'm meant to be alive yeah. over and over and over, stronger, louder, faster. I'm meant to be alive, man. In the night st- before I knew I was going to make it. At that time, it was That's probably right. still a pretty good possibility that I wasn't going to make it. So yeah. uh, I have that belief. But I don't know that. Um, I don't remember much conversation yeah. with the doctors and like it's my chances of survival was ever talked about, but that was before my surgery. And at that point I was still 20, almost 24 hours out from a gunshot wound. So yeah, you're a fighter, bro. <laughs> you got that fighter mentality. I'm going to read this. I, have it. I still have the bullet. Yeah. I still have it all too. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm going to read right now. In the, in the nightstand that once held his gun, Drew keeps a small jewelry box with a keepsake inside. It's the bullet that burrowed through his head and changed his life. Sometimes he'll remove it from the box, roll it between his index fingers and thumb, use it to remind himself where he was and where he is. I look at this thing and I think, I'm stronger than you, he says. I'm stronger than what I thought I was. And man, I'm telling you, your story is beautiful, bro. 
I mean, I, I can't even tell you how impactful your story was today because there's a lot of people out there suffering, man, and they needed to hear your voice. And, and again, you have the strength. Uh, you own the power now. You've been empowered to tell your story, and uh, you will definitely affect a lot of people, man. And good luck with what you do, Drew. Thank you so much. Yeah. I had such a good time today. Thank you for allowing me to talk about this. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, brother.